Well, welcome to the latest edition of the St Mark's podcast coming here from St Mark's in Harrow in West London. Um, my name is Peter MacDonald and I'm interviewing today Professor Omar Faiz, who's uh, uh, one of our surgeons here with a keen interest in inflammatory bowel disease and an expert in that. He's also our clinical director. And uh, well, welcome, Omar, to our little program. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, and I was thinking we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease. We're particularly talking about, I think, the ulcerative colitis today. Uh, we, we might touch on Crohn's disease, but I think it'll really stick with sure. ulcerative colitis. And as a surgeon, a, a proctologist like you and I, I always used to think that I got the simplest cases as well as the worst cases in the sense that they present sometimes with rectal bleeding, a little bit of a discharge and pus and, and diarrhea, and then we would treat those for a little while if we could and then pass them on to the gastroenterologist when they, got, when they needed more treatment. And it was only when that, all that failed that we got them back again. So we always saw the easiest and the worst. Did you make a comment about that? I, it's interesting you say that. So I think I think we're possibly it's going further than that now. I think, if anything, we're seeing the worst uh, now. Uh, I think many of us now are outside of the endoscopy department, so we're not necessarily scoping. Um, and a lot of people don't have a, a, a proctology practice such that they're necessarily seeing uh, the, the rectal bleeders firsthand. So I think for the majority of colorectal surgeons, they're encountering ulcerative colitis patients um, either as part of their emergency on-call work, when there's a clinic on the ward, or uh, through their elective work if they also sort of uh, cover uh, an elective component to inflammatory bowel disease surgery. So thinking about, first of all, the elective component, the three main indications of surgery for or total colectomy for for ulcerative colitis is of course someone who's already got a cancer someone who's got dysplastic changes and and the majority are those that have failed medical management we're not going to discuss that in detail but uh, is that roughly how you see it those are the three main indications certainly, certainly in the elective setting you're absolutely right um that <clears throat> i think the problem is that the definition of failing medical management now is becoming uh, more elusive really and there are more and more treatments that patients can try so uh, I think sort of patients are, are in that area for longer and there's always a, a blurred distinction between those ones that actually limp to see you in clinic and those ones that are actually admitted through the gastroenterologists uh, with with colitis. And you, you sort of hinted a, a, for a moment there about the new medical treatments. I mean, has the the new bio, have the new biologic medications reduced the colectomy rate overall in this modern era? It's a really difficult question to answer. Um, I, I would have thought that we would have had a definitive yes or no for that by now, but we don't. Um, we've we've certainly in the in the Western world we've always quoted figures for patients who've asked. Um, in the region of 20 to 25 percent lifetime risk of undergoing a colectomy. Now, the majority of those patients will tend to have their colectomy early on in their disease, usually within about three years of, of diagnosis. About a third of patients actually fall after that, that, that time scale. What's been quite difficult to ascertain has been whether or not those changes, uh, whether or not the, the, the colectomy rate has changed. And if there are changes within certain populations, are they directly attributable to the introduction of biological treatments? Uh, 
Now, you see, I mean, this, going back 10 to 15 years, there was evidence emerging out in Canada to start with that actually after the introduction of infliximab, you could see a reduction in the rate of elective surgery for uh, ulcerative colitis. Now, that doesn't necessarily follow that it was the uh, introduction of infliximab. There are a lot of things that were changing uh, around that time. And that hasn't been substantiated by everybody who's who's looked at this. You've got other uh, areas, other investigators who've looked at other populations, and actually the colectomy rates have, if anything, gone up. Others have found that colectomy rates were actually coming down anyway, um, and so trying to actually sort of define that it was attributable to to, to biologics just isn't isn't possible and of course we we at some marks it's difficult for us to say from our own figures because obviously we've got more surgeons than we used to we've had more referrals so it's difficult to we've got a complex picture because of the yeah. because of the tertiary referral practice um we we've we've got some data which we've presented from from the national uh hospital episode statistics data for england uh on this and this is work that uh, that one of my phd students guy worley uh, has done and and this looks at the colectomy rates in uh, for elective uh, surgery and emergency surgery for ulcerative colitis in England uh, so across all NHS uh, hospitals and what we can say for the, from that is that colectomy rates have dropped a little but not hugely and that's really o only over the last few years the the reduction has been about four percent per year really quite small then it's, it's it is quite small um and it's and it's again difficult to attribute that directly to to biological therapy so has there been a change well there may have been subtle changes but we certainly haven't found big seismic shifts in the management of, uh, of ulcerative colitis due to the introduction of these agents okay thank you very much now who should be performing this surgery obviously in the emergency setting any good abdominal surgeon should be able to take out a colon in an emergency setting and we can't expect the elective centres to be able to do all the emergencies it just wouldn't be practical or safe but who should be performing the elective operations i don't know the answer to that uh, peter who would you like to do your elective operation uh, the right surgeon the right place at the right time but that's uh, that's begging the question and um, what about what if the wrong surgeon what, thinks he's the right surgeon <laughs> there's another problem but what about the evidence for high volume centers and the patient outcomes i mean take something so, like so, ileoanal pouch which is a complex operation just take that alone so I, again i think this is a really uh, important area and you have to you have to look at the patient pathways in all of this um, because because how we configure services is very very different uh, and what we can offer in terms of the emergency pathway and what we can offer uh, in the elective setting now certainly in the emergency pathway a patient will follow their gastroenterologist usually into hospital under their uh, direct admission and then the gastroenterologist will call upon their colleagues their surgical colleagues for support and again, the, the, the on-call rotors that exist out there in very tertiary centres, you've got exclusive colorectal uh, uh, on-call rotors that we're very lucky to have here. Um, but you go to other places and they, they, they have to be a lot more general. So you may not have, you know, may, you may have a, a very sort of broad uh, GI specialist on-call. In other places, you may not even have that. It may actually fall to the to the breast surgeon to undertake the colectomy 
uh, in an ex extreme situation. Now that's very different, obviously, and that require the the approach to that requires complete reconfiguration of services if we're going to change uh, some of that. But what can change much more easily is what happens to the patient after the colectomy. I think it's important to say that if it was if it was me, Peter, I think I would want a laparoscopic colectomy. At least that would keep me in the running for a, for a laparoscopic restorative procedure uh, thereafter. And you would hope that sort of uh, most centres would be able to sort of feel that today. But it's not easy. In the in, acute setting. In the acute in, setting, in the acute it's setting. not easy at all. Well, let's just talk about the acute severe colitis, which is the term which is to some extent replaced all those other lovely words like toxic megacolon and fulminant colitis and <laughs> all those beautiful sounding, terrifying words that we used to use. So we're talking about acute severe colitis. And about 20 to 30% of patients might present this way initially. Yeah. Um, how do we define it exactly? I mean, there are lots of scoring systems and this and that, aren't there? So it it is um, it's done on the basis of certain uh, clinical and, and biochemical parameters. So uh, a patient who has acute severe colitis on the True Love and Wits uh, criteria, it will be decided on the, on the basis of the fact that they go out to the toilet over six times uh, per day. They will have a temperature over thirty seven point eight. They'll have a tachycardia uh, defined by a pulse rate of over 90, uh, a hemoglobin uh, under 10.5, and I'm sure there's one other, but I, I can never uh, get all of CRP, them. CRP. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, uh, uh, an, an elevated CRP over 30. So this is managed initially uh, with the help of the gastroenterologist, obviously, as well as the surgeon keeping an eye and waiting for at the moment that things may change, with... Steroids, hydrocortisone, still the mainstay. Yeah, so uh, you know, I mean, various different guidelines have come out this year in in the UK, and um, you know, it's still very much the admission is likely to be led by the gastroenterologist, and for the first three days, they will commence um, the intravenous uh, hydrocortisone, usually four times a day. Uh, at the same time, they'll undergo sort of you know daily clinical uh, monitoring. Patients will have daily biochemical monitoring. They'll examine the, the stools uh, for pathogens, um, as well as doing a, an unprepared flexible sigmoidoscopy and biopsies to assess for the severity uh, of the disease. And they'll, they'll characterize that according to the, the Mayo severity scoring. Um, and, and radiologically, we used to get abdominal x-rays. They're still in the guidelines to get uh, radiological support. No, to see there's the, still a place for that. Yes, um, although I think most people now are just replacing that with a baseline uh, CT scan uh, in many, many places. What's the CT giving more than the... So, the, the, uh, because now the, the Vogue is... Well, certainly the, the, the Vogue should be, in terms of endoscopic assessment, should be towards safety, so to not... Uh, proceed up through inflamed bowel you can't really you can gauge the severity but you can't gauge the extent of the uh, disease now the abdominal x-ray was quite good for demonstrating if there were areas of, of toxic megacolon but um, maybe didn't give you sort of like an ideal sort of roadmap whereas with the ct scan you can see more accurately the the extent of the uh, the colonic involvement
And you might see very subtle perforations earlier, I suppose. True. Um, yeah. And obviously, if there's a tumour, yeah. you know, at the same time, coincidentally, that uh, I suppose is a rare but uh, important uh, phenomenon. Um, and uh, you, we've done the hydrocortisone in three days. Things are not getting better. The patient's n not improving. And what's the next therapy that you see so the I think, physicians I think the using? Next, the next therapy really comes down to it. There's usually a sort of a, a junctional point at three days when the physician should team up with their surgeon and assess the patient together and the decision at that point is whether or not they think it's suitable to proceed towards medical rescue therapy and I can come on to that in, in just a moment or instead to go towards surgery. Now uh, if they feel that the patient is stable enough to sort of proceed with medical rescue therapy well the physician will try either uh, IV cyclosporin or infliximab and I think you know once you've embarked on on either of those they usually jointly will set a limit of you know one week that by that point they will deem whether or not the patient has actually thrived uh, or failed um, upon which uh, surgery is indicated. Right. Okay. So that's if not been before. Try. They usually try one or the other. They yeah. won't won't go for infliximab and then cyclosporin. No, that's you? that's not to be done. Um, no. The the uh, double immunosuppression we, we we've seen has been uh, related to extremely high levels of morbidity. So what sort um, what sort of morbidity? Well, septic morbidity yeah. from from the procedure. So right. Um, uh, and multi-organ problems uh, afterwards. So, so um, it's frowned upon to sort of try doubling back the, uh, you know, and crossing over to the uh, to the alternative uh, one. If a patient has failed, then it's indicated to pursue. Okay, surgery. so we've now got a patient who's failed on the rescue therapy, and surgery's been uh, accepted by the patient. Uh, in order to get them well. I must say, when I was doing more of this, when I was younger, I used to think this was almost the, the best operation I ever did. I could change a dying patient into a very well one within the space of one or two days. And uh, I expect you feel the same when you, when you have to do it. Uh, and we're now talking about the technique. Uh, you sort of hinted earlier, you well, think it should be Well, just before we come done, to that, because yeah. I, I agree with you entirely surgically, but... It, it is also a time for the patient that actually often feels as though it's fraught with failure. And very often they've been hoping to avoid that position throughout. And, it, and, and I certainly, I mean, I don't know, you know, you will remember it well that, that those conversations that you have with patients beforehand are very difficult because you're, you're trying to, to um, uh, talk them round to a position of safety that, that they need this operation for good reasons. Um, they don't want to hear that uh, very often. Uh, they have many, many questions not relating just to the operation you're describing, but also what happens next. Pouch surgery is a huge amount of information to offload on somebody when they're physiologically quite uh, weakened through the disease and, and uh, very often uh, emotionally. So, so do you say to them, I'm not going to talk about pouch surgery at the moment. We do, this, is, this is the rescue surgery to get you well enough so, to so, take to the next stage at a later date? Usually what, what I do is I say, you know, we've approached the situation, there's really little choice here in terms of, in terms of you know, getting you better. Um, and I do usually sort of talk to them if they need to talk about pouch surgery. Uh, I usually ask the stoma nurses, we're lucky here to have them double up as pouch nurses in certain areas. And they will often go up and speak to the patients 
uh, as well, trying to maintain the focus on, on subtotal colectomy. But I think, again, an important point is to, to put in as many visits as you can beforehand uh, in order to actually, you know, uh, for the patient to, 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 to feel more, more comfortable going into the surgery. Now you've done all that. You've you know, the surgery's starting. Um, you, you, what sort of proportion do you think up and down the country of patients are getting this done laparoscopically, at least initially? But... It's from the the work that we've done again with the the national administrative databases. Um, it until about four years ago, it was still quite low, um, and by low, uh, I meant under twenty percent. Mm. Now, it'd be interesting to see how much it's actually improved. You think it probably has improved? But you I think it probably has improved somewhat, but, I, yeah. but I, I doubt whether or not there have been dramatic changes, actually, because I think a lot of that low number correlated to how the services are organised. How often are you being asked to do elective surgery at a later date on patients who've already had a full-size laparotomy? I mean, uh, I'm sure that makes it more difficult. We know it does, but but uh, I mean, do you see that quite often? So, with the with the external referrals, it is still quite off, quite often the case, to be honest. Uh, internally, we we you know myself and a colleague, you know, have have run a rotor. Two colleagues, we've run a rotor whereby we've done these cases ourselves laparoscopically, but. Um, Elsewhere, I think it's still very common that patients have an open subtotal colectomy. Okay, well, whether it's laparoscopic or open, uh, what is the what's the uh, what are the fundamentals of the technique at this point? You're trying to save a patient from basically dying. Uh, what what are you so, thinking? Uh, with the uh, interestingly, with the, with a laparoscopic approach, um, the the ACP guidelines, which which were published last year. Um, they, uh, we, we stopped short of sort of being too didactic about, about laparoscopy and we suggested that, that um, patients, you know, had a, should have some choice uh, towards the surgical procedure, but there were certain indications where it might be dangerous, such as perforation or, or toxic me megacolon. And certainly patients shouldn't be delayed in order to get uh, laparoscopic surgery. With the certainly with the the laparoscopic approach, I think sort of some of the key elements for me. I I, I do a, use a sort of multi-port laparoscopic uh, approach. I take the vessels internally um, laparoscopically. Um, I I leave the omentum. That was one thing that I was taught to do differently when I when I was a. a an RSO here at St Mark's. You think it's going to be useful to fill the pelvis later? Well, it's interesting. I'll come back to that um, in, in, in our pouch surgery because I increasingly now leave the mesorectum. Um, I don't use it so much to, to, to leave the, to, to plug the pelvis, but I think pri previously it was perceived that there were problems with adhesions that you quite often get with the, uh, the omentum. And, and obviously with the laparoscopic approach, we see a lot less of that. Um, some colleagues I know, they do a very close colonic dissection. They leave the mesocolon. Um, I don't. I tend to take. It's a bit uh, quicker to do, take them further down. It certainly is if you're taking the vessels yeah. internally, yeah. You only have to but I think laparoscopically has meant that some of them are just, uh, just some colleagues will just reflect the, the left and right hemicolon up to a very small central abdominal wound and then with an energy device extracorporeally just stick very close to the colon. And 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 cauterize the vessels adjacent to the to the colon. And how long does this take you compared with a laparotomy? Is it is it, so, is it so longer? Now I think my my timings are the same. Yeah. yeah. So the colon's been mobilized, the vessels have been divided. You divided the ileum right up against the cecal wall. Yeah. 
um, to preserve as much as you possibly can. And what are we going to do about the anatomy now? Are we going to be doing a mucous fistula? Or so that's, that's an interesting stump? question as well. Uh, and again, the evidence uh, base for all of this is virtually non-existent. Um, the, the choices you have are between stapling off the rectum and dropping it back into the pelvis. That's my least preferred option that um, even with a transanal catheter if you get a blowout it's very you, it's very dangerous yeah it? It you can, can have really real difficult. problems that follow yeah. and you really you really then get blurring of the uh, of the, the the planes for your next uh, yeah. uh, procedure um so i i uh, try and avoid that um the uh, one alternative is to actually staple off and bring the uh, rectal stump to either in the midline or the left iliac fossa underneath the skin and attach it to the fascia so that if it does blow out then you can actually open the wound and it'll discharge outwards um, it's not without its problems uh, but um, that's my preferred option you prefer that to a mucous fistula well i think patients prefer it to a mucous fistula but i do do reserve a mucous fistula for the patients that are really unstable really heavily immunosuppressed and there, there's there's one group that just technically you run the staple line and it just the staples aren't aren't fully catching you can see that sort of you know it wanting to open in certain places and in those i just formalize it as a mucus fistula right and if you do importantly so you... as well uh, peter when i when i leave the rectal stump um i also leave the the inferior mesenteric uh, vessels as well because that actually allows if you are going to do um uh the equivalent of a tme uh, dissection down into the pelvis then that that preserves your planes and and so that does mean that you're doing a close colonic dissection on the left side where the ima yeah supplies the right side probably doesn't matter on the, and the transverse yeah. colon in, in that yeah. sense right so you've now got a an ileostomy you you've brought the you brought the colon out through a small midline so, incision. So, so, so I, I bring it out through the same hole that I'm going to use for, to, for tacking the rectal stump. Yeah. Actually, so the right. rectal stump, um, and and I'll I'll staple it off at that point, tack it to the tack the stump to the uh, to the fascia, and then close the skin over the top. The ileostomy, laparoscopically, I think it's very easy to get very confused at this point. Um, very often, you, 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 your your uh, ileostomy is so close to your umbilical porch which is where you usually if you're using a 10 millimeter camera where you're actually looking through so it's usually too close up to actually see clearly what's going on um when we when we looked at the national data we actually found that there was actually a surprisingly high reoperation rate uh, attached to subtotal colectomy and i suspect that a significant proportion of those that relate to the ileostomy potential uh, twists or kinks um, and uh, so certainly one of the things that I do is I usually convert to a 5mm port, 5mm uh, camera at that point, and then that allows some distance between, you know, you can use one of the, one of the other ports, the epigastric one, and then you can see much more clearly uh, with some perspective as to the orientation of your ileostomy. Right, you've got to be very careful it's not twisted. Ah, or, absolutely. Or whatever. And, and this is us. We could just talk briefly about your technique for spout ileostomy because... Um, you know, and probably not going to do that in the second episode. Um, any any tricks there making a good spout? Is it very important to put a little bit of time in at the end of the operation to do that well? Yeah, I think I think you know there there are keys to an ileostomy, and and um, you can do a fantastic operation, and then uh, the patient has has lots of trouble 
afterwards if there isn't attention to detail on the ileostomy. Also, the, the, the fascial defect as well, that, you know, you get it too big, you start to get sort of peristomal herniation, you make it too small, you have patients that just don't open up properly after the procedure, and very often they, they have quite a, a protracted uh, period of stay on the ward. Certainly in terms of the ileostomy, I think um, most of us, Peter, I mean, correct me if, if, if it was different, but um, most of us were taught the sort of 554 uh, technique for a, for a Brooks End ileostomy. The um, uh, sutures sort of allow some, some just slightly greater eversion superiorly than inferiorly, so that when the patient's vertical, you'll get sort of the, uh, the, the content going directly into the bag and away from, from the skin. And the mesentery facing upwards or? I, so I do use the mesentery facing upwards. Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, now the patient's better and gone to I, ITU or high care yeah. for a little while, and the the change is often dramatic. Yeah. And that's where we're going to leave the first episode of um, uh, this uh, talk with uh, Professor Omar Faiz on ulcerative colitis and the surgery attached to it. In the next episode, we'll be talking about restorative proctocolectomy and the elective procedures that would follow such a patient. Well, thank you very much, Omar, for joining us, and I, uh, I've learnt a lot. Thank and, you, Peter. Um, uh, we we'll look forward to the next episode. <laughs> Goodbye.